in the face of failure, find solutions, is never give up. To me, that's what grit is, certainly from a startup standpoint. You don't give up, you don't quit. When you face adversity, you don't come back and try and crack the coconut the exact same way, right? You're saying, hey, like, okay, there's a reason why we're failing and we need to find what the root cause is and address it and change and adapt. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Brendan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So I like to start these things off by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. So why don't I start by going through your background and you tell me what I might be missing. Okay, sounds good. You got a BA in English from St. Mary's. You then went on to start your career as a recruiter. Highlight first, right? Bachelor of Arts degree from St. Mary's, got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then a recruiter for about three years. Then you went to become an inside sales manager at OnStar for about a year, which ultimately maybe a half decade later was acquired by LSI Logic. Then you went on to be the director of sales at Spoke Software. You spent about a year and a half doing that. You then went on to what was at the time a little company called LinkedIn. You were the 15th or so employee there. First sales hire, director of corporate sales, which all it was at the time was corporate sales. And I think there was only one product line for LinkedIn at the time. It was barely an inkling of a company, probably had just done its Series A, if that. And you did two and a half years there. You left in 2008. You took nine months or so off on a sabbatical to go travel. Then you came back and you picked another decent one. You became the VP of sales at EchoSign. You spent five years doing that, driving it towards an acquisition by Adobe. You were the 10th employee at EchoSign. That acquisition was around 400 million. Then you went on to become the VP of sales at TalkDesk. You were the fifth employee at TalkDesk. You spent about a year and a half at TalkDesk. Currently, TalkDesk is at, they actually recently just raised $143 million and raised that at a $3 billion valuation. And for the last seven years, you founded Cassidy Ventures, which kind of looks like a go-to-market consulting firm for- It's really the last four years, essentially, yeah. Four years, yeah. okay. And you've consulted what looks like over- 20 startups, mostly on go-to-market type activities. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> pretty sweet career. What did I miss? Anything? Yeah. So I think that's a good summation. <laughs> so there's a couple of things that you and I should talk about today and moments of failure and hardships. And the second is coaching trees, building lineages, and how you might actually be able to go ahead and do that. I think one of the reasons why I wanted to specifically talk to you about failure and hardships is it seems kind of, I guess, the opposite of your career. Like if you look at this thing from the outside in, it is 15th at LinkedIn, 10th at EchoSign, and fifth employee at TalkDesk. Everybody objectively looking at it is like, oh, the dude can't miss, right? And so I think there's a lot of unique challenges that I'm sure that you faced along the way. Maybe before we dive into it, I'd love to contextualize your experience a little bit. I'm really curious, how did you find that opportunity Employee 15 at LinkedIn probably didn't look like the sexy opportunity that it may look like in hindsight. So maybe you could just start there and 
tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So back 15 years ago, 2005, I guess it is, I was with a company called Spoke Software. You don't know who Spoke is because Spoke didn't ultimately make it to the finish line. I think they actually might exist in some form or another, but what most people don't remember is that, and quite frankly, most people don't go back 2005 as far as their tech careers. So, but Spoke and LinkedIn were sort of funded at the same time. And they were viewed very much as potential competitors and rivals. Two completely different sort of ways to go about trying to build a, a network or a community. LinkedIn, obviously, sort of an opt-in, you know, user-controlled profile. And Spoke was sort of trying to back into it by accumulating data in email. So, you know, basically able to grab a signature block in email. So name, title, company. And if people had this Spoke client installed on their laptops, <laughs> it would grab that data if a profile didn't exist or it would confirm somebody's data or profile. Anyways, needless to say, LinkedIn won that particular battle, which wasn't that much of a battle. So the companies were very much viewed as similar. And LinkedIn at that point was trying to figure out how they were going to monetize the company. So in the early days of LinkedIn, there was no real revenue, no real monetization strategy. And Reed intentionally sort of pushed that out as far as he could to sort of create virality in the platform. But once they decided that they wanted to monetize, they wanted to do it in a way that was as non-invasive to the user base as possible. And so recruiting and sort of HR was viewed as a place where they could drive revenue while sort of creating a win-win scenario for customer and, and LinkedIn user. And so they reached out to me, actually cold called me, a woman named Tara Terwilliger, who was the original GM of LinkedIn Jobs. And she cold called me and, you know, ironically, right, <laughs> this is LinkedIn, not an email, not a, not an introduction, but a random cold call saying, you know, I think your background would be a great fit. And then I went in and met with them and met with Reed. I mean, this is, you know, early stage Reed, a woman named Sarah Imbach, who was like in sort of an underrated, huge player in what LinkedIn became. She really ran the operational side of the business. And came in and interviewed, and they offered me the job, and I turned it down. I turned it down initially, <laughs> got promoted at Spoke, and then about maybe 60 to 90 days later, I was in the office at Spoke one night just sort of looking at LinkedIn and Spoke side by side. And I was like, yeah, this is over. I said, LinkedIn is beating us, and they're not even trying to do it. And so I reached back out to LinkedIn, and... At that point, Tara, who was the original GM of LinkedIn Jobs, had already moved on. So she was no longer there. And so her email auto-forwarded to Sarah, came back in one more time, <laughs> and came back in the second time. And at that point, I was essentially running it, starting sort of LinkedIn Jobs or whatever you want to call it, corporate solutions. And at that point, the predominant thought was LinkedIn's revenue would be driven by advertising and advertising sales predominantly, obviously, because that's what Facebook was driven on. And online pay with the credit card accounts, those were the two primary revenue drivers. And they said, hey, if you can make LinkedIn corporate solutions like 15% of the overall revenue stream, that would be a win for the company. And obviously, it quickly became a lot more than that. So, That's a hell of a story. 
So I guess a, a few things. One, when you said no, what was your thought process behind that? Was it because there was another promotion in front of you at Spoke? Where was your head at in that decision-making process? Yeah, so somehow this guy, David Treffler, who was like the VP of sales for Spoke, he somehow figured out that I was talking to LinkedIn. To this day, I still don't know how he came about that information. And so he quickly promoted me from like managing the team to like running the sales team. And at that point, LinkedIn is not at all viewed as like some slam dunk to be worth $30 billion or <laughs> whatever, you know, obviously at 26 billion, I think Microsoft bought them for. So it was not viewed to be that way, right? It was viewed as like, that's the company that I get that spam, you know, that invitation to connect. And nobody really knew if it was going to be a real viable company long-term. Obviously, Reed knew, but a lot of other people didn't. And so I was like, all right, you know, it was a tough decision, but got promoted to Spoke, got more money. And then I just realized that was like probably not the right decision. And so I said, what the heck? You know, I'm just going to send her an email and, that, and see if it's still possible. And then, you know, obviously it was. And so, yeah, I think it was just at that point, LinkedIn was not viewed to be, quite frankly, most startups at 20 employees are very seldom as viewed as like, oh, this is a slam dunk to become some big deal. Right. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty. And so, you know, when I got offered the job the second time, it was with more responsibility. So in that way, it worked out for me. But I was actually at my friend, this guy named Matt Strand, who's an executive recruiter in Silicon Valley, one of the best. And a, a friend of mine, I've known him for like 37 years, actually, believe it or not. And he and I were <laughs> sitting out by the pool at his mom's house, believe it or not. <laughs> And, you know, I was kind of debating, talking about the decision. And he's like, well, do you think LinkedIn is for sure going to be more valuable than Spoke? And I said, yes. And he said, just do it. <laughs> that was the moment where I said, okay, I'm doing it now. So full credit to Matt Strand for that one. So yeah, that's kind of how it came to pass. Yeah. Matt, wherever you are, you kicked off something pretty cool. <laughs> he's done okay for himself. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then two and a half years later, you know, I guess you've de-risked the business to some degree. It certainly wasn't the risk that it was at 15 employees. And so I don't know how many employees were there when you left and you left in February of 2008, which is a very interesting time to leave a company. And you took nine months off to travel, right. you know, and I guess I'm framing it up this way and, and maybe I'm leading the witness, but Again, you come in at 15, you do a lot of the dirty work, you get your fingernails dirty, you have a two and a half year run there, you go from 15 to whatever employee that you become. Again, you've de-risked the business. Most people would say, this is the ride that I'm gonna go on for a really long time and continue to build on the building blocks that you've already put in place. So yeah, what happened? Well, I mean, so LinkedIn went through like a leadership change. So Reed stepped out as CEO and somebody else came in. At that point, I'm pretty young. And so was probably not going to be the sort of VP of sales sort of determining wherever the ride was going to go next. And that's really kind of what I wanted to do, to be frank. And so I said, obviously at that point, two and a half years in, if the company's ultimately super successful, I'll profit from that. But, you know, I felt like I wanted to run my, my own show completely. And so that was really kind of the decision around it. 
which do I really want to be the guy that is the mid manager or, you know, whatever that role is, or even number two, I wanted to run my own show. And that was sort of the bet I was making on myself. Yeah. I mean, in reality, it was a, a pretty political time in the company. I was young and I was not really ready to win that battle. I'll put it that way. This is a weird question, but would you consider that time successful for you? I would say that it was super successful and that I learned a lot what was required to be a VP of sales and also learned a lot about what are the things that I needed to get better at, I think would be sort of the gist of it, right? So I think I was a really good coach, a really good mentor, and I think the side that I didn't really get yet was it can't just be positive upside, (laughs) right? You can't just be a player's coach. You know, there has to be just a little bit of not fear of me, but like there's a line. And I think I was a great coach and a great mentor, but was I really willing to hold people's feet to the fire as a leader? That was a line that I wasn't as comfortable with early in my career as a sales leader. Yeah. In the Kleiner portfolio, I talk to the sales leaders and I say, how are things going? And he or she will say, I think things are going great. And so the first thing that I typically do is I go and talk to the top rep and the worst rep on the team. And I say, how do you think things are going? What's going on? Do you feel excited? Are you motivated? Do you like your manager? And usually when they say, love my manager, she's amazing, or he's amazing, he's the best. And when the bottom rep says that as well, Typically, people take that as a positive leading indicator of, oh, this is a really good manager. But oftentimes, it's actually that they're the people's manager, to your point, right? They're more appeasing and doing more cultural type stuff as opposed to actually driving a number and ultimately delivering the outputs and the results that the organization needs versus making everyone feel really good. And so I think about that as well. I would agree with that. I'd say... What LinkedIn was great at, was great from an experience standpoint for me is that was essentially like, you know, in a room with a whiteboard, there's no deck, there's no pitch, there's no, right? We had to literally figure all of it out from scratch, everything. What is the pitch? What's the message? Who's the buyer? What's the buyer psychology? How are we going to engage the buyer? What's the messaging? Everything. Because LinkedIn didn't really have a marketing organization at that point. Everything LinkedIn did from a marketing standpoint, really product standpoint and all the rest was all geared towards LinkedIn as a consumer internet company, right? Not as a enterprise software company. And so we had to do all that ourselves. And that was invaluable for me in my career because at that point, nobody really knew all that much about LinkedIn. So it was pretty blank slate and we had to go make a market for ourselves. And if you've never done that, and you want to work in a startup, it's a huge liability. You have to go invent something that doesn't really exist, right? A market, an opportunity. It's a combination of sort of evangelical and educational selling, right? Where you even have to educate them that a problem exists and that there's actually a solution to that problem. Far cry from Salesforce or Oracle, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you took nine months to travel. Hopefully you went somewhere nice. You come back. And you join, again, what is a unheard of, very small company called EchoSign. For those listening, EchoSign is the predominant competitor to DocuSign. 
got acquired by Adobe. Jason Lemkin was the CEO and, and founder, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And you joined as employee number 10 as the VP of sales. So you kind of got your first shot at it. Like, this is your number. This is your show. This is your organization to go build and lead. So you did that for five years. Obviously, it ended great. Tell me more about that. Specifically, I'm really curious about the process. How did you find that opportunity? How did you evaluate that opportunity? I'm sure you learned a little bit about evaluating these opportunities at an early stage from LinkedIn. So yeah, I'll leave it open-ended. Yeah. So I knew Jason. LinkedIn was an early EchoSign customer. So we were like one of their first 15 customers, maybe even 10 customers. And the team really liked the product. And it's actually, it's pretty hard to get sales teams to use new technology, at least back in, you know, 2008 or 2007, right? And so we deployed it and there was a woman named Brooke Watts, now Brooke Lopez on our team, who was sort of like our kind of sales ops leader, I guess, mm. for LinkedIn. And she, she's really the one that drove the evaluation, brought it in. And then we just noticed like our deals started closing faster, right? <laughs> and quite frankly, I was like, I wasn't that involved in the evaluation, but like, I was just like, wow, these deals seem to be closing faster. That was really the observation. And then, and so I sort of tangentially got to know Jason through that. And then later, Jason was sort of hiring a salesperson, his, one of his first sales reps. And it was between a candidate, obviously, that he had in the process and somebody that had used to work for me. Mm. And he, you know, it was a sort of a backdoor reference check. And he said, what do you think of this person? And I was like, oh, he's a great guy. It wasn't like a sterling endorsement, right? But I was, you know, I was trying to say something positive without lying. And then he goes, Jason asked me and said, uh, well, why don't you hire him at LinkedIn? And I was like, um, <laughs> it was one of the better questions on a reference call I'd ever heard. And that was sort of my introduction to Jason. Jason's a pretty smart guy for anyone that doesn't know. And so that's sort of how we got introduced. And then years later, I reached out to him on Facebook <laughs> at that point, back when Facebook was a social network and stuff. Just kidding. And I reached out to him on Facebook and... I was like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for what's next. And he said, well, good timing because <laughs> my VP of sales is just out of the company literally within like a week of that. So I went to EchoSign because it was, hey, I'm the VP of sales and you know, I'm betting on me, essentially, was my take. In 2009, there weren't a lot of SaaS companies 11 years ago. There weren't. And there certainly weren't a lot of VPs of sales jobs for SaaS companies. And so I was like, Hey, if, if I'm successful, obviously it's great for my career. And if I fail, well, I guess I'll have to figure something else out. <laughs> so it was pretty binary in that way. But I had known Jason and most of the things I've done in my career have been obviously, as I think for many people, through referral or introduction. And the way I viewed EchoSign was at that point, it was not at like the apex of the company, right? They had just let their first VP of sales go. They had very spotty sort of first year go to market. And so my take was, I'm pretty sure I can do better with this team than they're doing right now. And that was sort of my internal logic, <laughs> which is, I'm sure I can do better than that. <laughs> and so, yeah, I took the job. Unbeknownst to me, Jason had made a deal with the board that said, you know, unless he doubled sales in the next like two quarters or something that he would step aside as CEO, I think it was. So 
he was obviously making a big bet on me as I was making a bet, you know, sort of bet on them. And that started uh, obviously a great run for the company and a great CEO VP of sales relationship. And, you know, you can't ask for much more uh, as a VP of sales is to have an incredibly supportive CEO that's like empowering and helps you and believes in you. Mm. And that was a great experience for me in my career. And just to frame up where you were, you were what, 30, call it 33-ish at that time? Yeah, ish, yeah. <laughs> ish, okay. So then you do this thing at EchoSign and it's probably the ride of your life. You have five years of just so much fun. You build this organization, you have a great exit into Adobe. And then shortly following, you decide 15 wasn't early enough. 10 was a little too late for you to come into a company. So you want to go in around five employees to go from the ground up again. And I talk on this show about how much respect I have for salespeople because they're taking on a lot of risk, but then for startup people because they're really taking on a lot of risk. But the ones that do the combination of the two, not just once, but over and over again, oh man, that takes something. So then you went to talk desk and you did that for about a year and a half. And did you need a break? Where, where was your head at at that point? Yeah. So the company, I live in Los Gatos. So talk desk, we were initially, our headquarters was in Mountain View. So I actually was the first employee in the United States for them. So it was literally, you know, Tiago, who's the CEO, who's one of my closest friends. He lived from Portugal, mm. from Lisbon. And so he didn't actually really like live in the United States full time. So he had an engineering team in Portugal. And I met him through Jason. So Jason was, I think, led the seed. Seed and eight rounds get so <laughs> mixed, you know. Yeah, the lines are definitely blurred these days. Pre-seed, seed, and A. Jason essentially founded them. So he was the first investor in. And he's like, you should go meet this guy. And I met him and, you know, <laughs> Tiago's a force of nature for sure. But I mean, for me, that's, it's obviously, it's a challenge, right? To help really help build these companies. I think it's more when you join at that stage or that early, it's not really just, you're not just taking a sales leadership job. You're taking, you know, you're helping build a company and that's super multifunctional, you know, there's, you're engaged in every area of the business. And so, yeah, that was that experience. But in Mountain View, they were in Mountain View, and then Tiago moved up to San Francisco. And at that point, I'd had my sort of second kid, was just a newborn, and I really couldn't do, like, the, at that point, obviously today, getting from Los Gatos to San Francisco is a lot less time than it was four years ago or five years ago. But uh, I just couldn't do the three-and-a-half-hour round-trip commute. And so I stepped into kind of an advisory role there. But obviously, I'm super stoked. They just got a $3.2 billion valuation. So excited about that. That was probably the best team I've built. That team at TalkDesk, that's kind of how I view it, right? Is everything you do, you take what you learn from your prior experience and make it better. But that team, I think off the TalkDesk team, I think there's like four VPs of sales. There's a CEO for a company that's got like a <laughs> about a billion dollar valuation. So that was an exceptional team. I mean, that was a challenging because at that point, obviously you have companies like Five9 and TalkDesk today, right? Which are building this support cloud in the SaaS space. Mm. But at that point, anything in customer support was viewed as like essentially a bad investment. Five9 was almost like a penny. It was not viewed as like a great place to be buying real estate. 
in the customer support space. So that was definitely fun. It was a challenge and it required basically everyone on the team had to be a plus talent. So when you said it was the best team and I want to talk about the four VPs of sales and the CEO and, and what they later went on to do. I want to table that piece of the conversation for a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But when you say that you got better at building these teams and this was the best team that you built, what are the like distillations that you have looking back on why? Do you think it was because you're more effective at identifying and recruiting talent? Do you think it's because your network was bigger? Do you think it's because the opportunity was much bigger? Maybe not to your point, but what do you think were some of the things that made you so much more effective on the third go around than the first? And, and maybe it was just, you had credibility. And so people were like, this guy has the Midas touch. That certainly helps when, you know, people are seeking you out, right? As like, I want to go, this is somebody that I want to work for and somebody that can, you know, create opportunity for me and all that. So that certainly helps just having the credibility. So the more success you've had, the more recognition you get for that success, I guess, that creates sort of more people coming your way that, that you actually don't even have to go out and like look for. Mm. Second, I think talk desk was where I sort of shifted into a mode of where every sales hire I hired, I wanted to hire people that wanted to be a VP of sales someday. Mm. Where the, it was pretty clearly people had that kind of ambition because my experience in the past had been some people would say, Hey, I, I don't want to hire somebody that says they want to be a VP of sales because I don't want them to come in and start acting like a VP of sales when I want them closing deals. But what my experience was is that people that had that drive and ambition universally were willing to put the effort in. Generally speaking, put the effort in and the time in and the commitment to get there because they knew what was required. And obviously I was clear about what was required. And so that really sort of became a pretty big element of it, which is like, what do you want to be in your career? Like, where do you want to go in your career? And I was looking for people that wanted to rise. They wanted to ascend in their career versus hiring people that don't have that level of drive to better their career and situation. It's as simple as that. When you look at the people that we did hire, they essentially all had that drive. And the one or two people that we hired that didn't have that drive were less successful, quite frankly. Yep. Makes total sense. Hell of a background, hell of a story. Maybe we could look at the other side of this coin as we just went through this meteoric rise. The title of the podcast has the word grit in it. It's inspired by Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, which I think is really great. And basically, Grit's a book about what goes through your head when you fall down and how that, not talent or luck, makes pretty much all the difference as a predictor of someone's success in the future. And she looks at West Point and she looks, she does all sorts of studies and Basically, what she says is that the problem with grit is that there's a very ugly side. And what that means is that grit means getting up and being very close and personal with failure over and over again. And most of us can only take that dose of failure in very small doses. And so kind of maybe to my earlier point of like throwing yourself in the fire at these early stage companies, knowing how much failure there would be is why I was really impressed with what you've done and why I said it was brave. You've talked about in moments, I've heard you on Saster shows and others talk about moments where you and the CEO would say, and maybe this was Jason at EchoSign would say, okay, it's over. And you'd literally have a kind of existential moment with the company of like, this is it, you know, and 
you go home and you kind of share the story where you'd lick your wounds for a few hours mm -hmm. and then wake up the next day and you'd go into problem solving mode. You get back at it. And so bringing this question all the way full circle. But when I talk about like failure and getting up close and personal with failure, like that is it. And when you haven't felt that before, it's a bad feeling, really bad, especially when so much of your identity is wrapped around wanting to make sure that you can win and be successful here. And so I will leave it to you to kind of maybe talk about specifically that example or maybe a few others. I'd love for me and the audience just to hear a little bit more about your moments being up close and personal with failure in, in your experience. Yeah, I think I would say I'm always reticent to say I am this or that, right? Or like that I have some incredible talent or quality that separates me from others. Because first off, it's, you know, nobody wants to hear that. And I'm not sure it's true, by the way. <laughs> but I would say, you know, one thing that I'm sure of in my career, and I don't know why, is that in like the darkest moments, right? Startups are, there's huge highs and there's, I call them cavernous lows, right? There's a million reasons to quit, right? <laughs> And for whatever reason, when like in the darkest time, when maybe many would pack up and quit, I can wake up the next day and just be like, I can't be any, any higher or more excited or more motivated. And I, so I'm not sure why that is, right? It's like you have to be able to have short-term memory, I think. And so if there's like a cumulative sort of chipping away at your spirit, whether that comes in big chunks or in, in short chops or whatever, right? That it's just, it's hard to sustain it. And so I think it's just because I didn't get into this career because I wanted to be a VP of sales when I'm 60, right? I didn't, you know, I don't walk around being like, I'm a VP of sales. That's who I am, right? It's more around, I think, building companies and building great companies and working with great people and helping those people sort of get where they want to go in their life and their career. If I can play a role in that, that's great. But, you know, I think that for whatever reason, in those moments when it would be easy to quit, that seems to be when I find the challenge to be, it's kind of funnest in a way, right? Because somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The odds are stacked against you at this point. <laughs> so it's like, this may as well be fun. Whatever we do, you know, we can go and try and find a solution to this problem and we'll either succeed or fail. Most would fail here, right? And so it's like somewhere in my mind, I've calculated that this is like all upside now. <laughs> that takes stress off actually for me in a way, right? It's like, hey, I may fail trying to fix this or trying to come, you know, get out of this rut or whatever it is, but whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to die trying. <laughs> don't quit. When, I, when you talk about grit, grit in a startup is don't quit. Don't give up. When you have you challenges and failures that you come back with solutions. So what is the solution to the problem? And I would say if there's any, like, who am I as a person, as a leader, is that in our darkest times, and I learned this from a coach, actually a coach I had in high school, <laughs> this like legendary high school football coach, and we had won like 25 straight games going into my senior year. And then we started 0-3. And, and this guy was my second winningest coach in, the, in California state history. And we all thought after we went 0-3 that he was going to come in and just absolutely just devastate us. And when he came in on Monday, he was like the most positive, solution-oriented. He was actually easier on us than he was with the prior year's team that had gone 13-0, and 0, you know? 
And that was a big learning for me, right? Which is if you've hired the right team, you don't need to like bury them in the dirt on Monday, right? It's actually better, more useful that when you find adversity that you're looking for solutions, you're looking to bring people up at that point. I'd rather be harder on the team in good times, right? When things are going good, that's when maybe you'll crack the whip more. But like when the team is at its lowest and, and morale is at its lowest, I think you have to try and find, be solution oriented instead of punitive in the way that you're dealing with people. And you have to roll up your sleeves and get in the fight. Yeah, that's my approach. Don't quit. Don't give up. Be solution oriented. Anyone can quit. And most do ultimately quit. View it as a challenge. That's the way I look at it. And I've had plenty of those scenarios in my career where it was like, I'm not sure we can come back from this. And then whatever reason, the next day I got up and I was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Will you share one of those stories? And if, if you don't want to, no problem. But are there any of those near-death failure experiences? Maybe it's the one that you know I referenced with Jason. Maybe it's another where you just go home and you crack a beer and you're like, well, <laughs> today sucked. <laughs> today really sucked. The starkest and the most dramatic ones, certainly there were more than a few at EchoSign, but I'll use the one as when we only raised like $8 million at EchoSign, right? In the lifetime of the company. You know, DocuSign raised like over a billion dollars, right? So we're competing against a company that was throwing money at everything in sight. We couldn't live that way. And so we were both partners with Salesforce. We were a much more proven partner than DocuSign was. And DocuSign basically came in and just basically said, we're going to buy this partnership with them. And so we had a lot of Salesforce customers that used EchoSign and Salesforce together. And basically Salesforce invested, I think like 10 or $15 million in DocuSign, gave them like an exclusive OEM sort of partner relationship, basically did everything possible to slant the field towards them. And we were like, geez, how the hell are we going to survive this, right? How much of your revenue approximately at the time do you think was coming from Salesforce as a customer or Salesforce's ecosystem of partners and, and customers? Uh, probably 60%. So a lot. And so that was a low point. And so basically, you know, it was like that scenario. I went home, went to sleep. I told my wife, hey, I don't know how the company can survive that. That's a death shot. And so I woke up the next morning and I was like in a great mood. And I was like, I don't know why I'm in a great mood. Came into work and then, you know, walked up to Jason's loft. <laughs> At that point, EchoSign was this office, not that big office, and it had this upstairs loft that Jason was in. And I basically said, you know what? Pardon my French. I said, fuck them, right? About Salesforce and DocuSign. And I said, we're going to beat them anyways. And when we beat them, we're going to throw it in their face and everyone's going to pay the piper on this, right? <laughs> we just were obsessed with beating these guys head-to-head -head in high-profile deals. And that was a great time in my career and for that team and the learning curve, right? Because we just learned how to play every single angle to our advantage. And DocuSign had really no idea what we were doing most of the time. They were coming in one way into deals and we were coming in five ways. <laughs> and so we were just finding out where was the leverage point we could find in this deal. We didn't care where it was. And once we found it, we were just relentless. We would not give up until we won.
that was a great experience. As the underfunded sort of scrappy competitor, I would say for probably like an 18-month period, we probably beat them nine times out of 10 head-to-head. That's a great story, man. (laughs) Then we got bought, by the way, and then, which at that point, that was certainly great for all of us financially, all that other stuff. We got acquired by Adobe, but at that point, maybe a year into that acquisition, maybe a year and a half, is when the trappings of being in a Fortune 500 company and the ways that that can slow you down became a disadvantage in ways that had been an advantage for us against them, right? So they were now the company that could be scrappy and nimble right? yep. and fast. And we were now the company that was slow and bureaucratic. And had we not gotten acquired, I'm fairly certain EchoSign would have you know, certainly been as you know, an IPO along with DocuSign. But that's also a learning. It's a learning of what type of company do you want to build, right? Do you want to be a company that goes the distance or do you want to get a nice acquisition where everybody gets paid? I think that's part of the learning curve. When I went through the last acquisition, everyone said, congratulations, Jubin, this is such a great outcome, mm-hmm. all these things. And I was certainly excited because it was validating for all the work that we've done over the last few years, but I was pissed. And they're like, what's, what is going on? And I'm like, I just, I wanted a longer run at it. And I look back on it having not had it anymore. And I just wanted to sink my teeth into a little bit more of that grind and and having a little bit longer of a run at it. And so I can empathize. I'll let you in on a little nugget. So when we were getting acquired by Adobe and it was like essentially in like due diligence, I think at that stage, DocuSign was pretty worried about it, to be frank. So DocuSign actually stepped in and basically said to our investors at EchoSign, they wanted us to merge together, right? where they would have sort of paid us a partial acquisition price, and then we would have all become one company, DocuSign and EchoSign, in which DocuSign's CEO would have been the CEO, Jason would have been the COO, I would have been the VP of sales, sort of overseeing both organizations. And so they put that on the table as we were sort of going through that process. And we didn't do it because there was a lot of enmity between the companies, I'll be honest. We didn't like them. They didn't like us. We didn't like just the way they did business, you know? And so we passed on it, but in hindsight, more experience years later, I understand why, you know, one of our investors really wanted to do it was because, hey, here's a chance for this to become a billion dollar company as this sort of merged entity, right? And so I obviously, I better understand how VCs and investors think now than I did 10 years ago. (laughs) Great backstory. Investors are generally are not looking for acquisition exits unless they're just through the roof, multi-billion dollar outcomes, you know? Yeah, unless it's LinkedIn at 26 billion. <laughs> so, okay, I want to make sure that I am respectful of your time and that I get to the second topic because I think it's important. Coaching trees and building a lineage. So I want to talk about Bill Walsh, San Francisco. We're both Bay Area natives. He was the head coach of the Niners at... 36 years old. So I want to contextualize the conversation because coaching trees are most preeminent within the NFL circles. So at 36, they recognized Bill Walsh's potential and they gave him his first shot as an offensive coordinator in Cincinnati. He ended up being like incredible offensive coordinator, but due to some internal politics, some power dynamics, all sorts of things. And I think a little bit of jealousy that this guy was the real deal. When the head coach ended up retiring, 
they viewed him as a threat and they ended up taking the defensive coordinator to be the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Stung by the move, Walsh resigned and spent two years coaching at Stanford. And then the owner at the time of the Niners, DeBartolo, offered him his first crack at running the show, at being the head coach. And at the time, the Niners were in the dumps. This was in 79. They were a 2-14 and 14 team. And Walsh overhauled the Niners from 2-14 and 14 in 79. And within three seasons, they're a Super Bowl champion. So the way that he built this organization was by basically hiring a bunch of unproven, uncut gems as a like really remarkable group of young assistants, all of whom became head coaches. Today, almost 50% of head coaches in the NFL are in one way, shape, or form Walsh disciples from his coaching tree being built within his lineage. So with that in mind, you talk a lot on your social media and others. You actually promote people that have worked for you. You've written articles about here's the top 10 VPs of sales that you should definitely consider at your startup. On our show, we have a lineage like Sam Blonde, who is you know a few episodes before you worked for you at EchoSign. And then Hannah Wilson, who is the VP of sales at Modern Health, she was worked for Sam Blonde, right? And so you see this thing start to manifest in really, really interesting ways. And so again, this is a really long-winded framing of this conversation, but the way that Walsh did it was by hiring a really great group of young assistants. And even earlier, when I said, I want a table it, you said the best team that you ever hired was at TalkDesk. And the context that you used the word best was not in terms of the revenue or the output of the teams or even the quality of what they were as individual AEs. It was what they went on to become and do. Four VPs of sales, a CEO. You also talk a lot about lineage through building a coaching tree often happens through stretch VPs. And what I mean by that is that it's the bunch of the young assistants that Walsh may hire or that a VP of sales may hire. It's those stretch hires that either get their first shot like you did when you were at LinkedIn or when you actually got your first chance at it at EchoSign. Someone's making a bet on you, right? And then you get to go ahead and do that. And you talk a lot about making those bets. And often startups are in a better position to make those bets on those stretch hires. Maybe with that framework, I'd love to hear your thoughts on stretch VPs. Well, I don't know that I would say from a hiring a VP of sales, whether it's a super experienced one or a younger one, you're not making a bet on unproven talent. You're making a bet on somebody that maybe hasn't proven it in that specific role, right? Maybe they've been a director of sales or a head of sales, but not a VP of sales, but they've done it and they've played a key role or maybe the key role in a company's success over time. I mean, hiring a VP of sales in a startup is fraught with risk, no matter what, right? <laughs> it's a risk-oriented hire, and everybody wants the, whatever you want to call it, the riskless hire, <laughs> right? So everyone's looking for somebody that has multiple wins, has scaled through multiple layers of growth and, and all the rest, right? And the reality is, is those people are really not available, right? <laughs> I've been pitched a lot of jobs for the years. And generally speaking, I'm just never going to take it, right? <laughs> the perfect hire doesn't really exist because the perfect hires generally are probably not going to take the risk that your startup represents. They're super risk averse. Let me put it that way, right? The top candidates are going to analyze you up and down, sideways, and they're looking for reasons not to come to your company. And so if you understand that, and you should absolutely say it, 
here's our list of our top five candidates, right? These are sort of dream hires. You should take a shot at those people. You absolutely, you got to take your shot and you'll have one shot and you better do it right. And if you don't do it right, you're onto the next list. The next list is going to be imperfect hires, right? Imperfect resumes or imperfect experience, whether that's a stretch VP of sales or a Salesforce RVP or somebody was VP of sales at a company that didn't make it. Those are really sort of the profiles you're looking at. And so I've obviously been a proponent of not that you should hire a stretch VP every time, but that you should consider that. When you're hiring a VP of sales, you should consider somebody like Sam, right? Somebody who was the number two at a super successful company with a VP of sales that that person worked for that sort of vouches for that person Mm. or endorses that person. You should look at that profile. And if you're not looking at that profile, you're doing yourself a disservice as a founder. If it's a venture capital firm that's helping advise a founder or CEO, they're doing a disservice to that founder if they're not looking at that profile. So really, for me, it's really when I think about hiring a VP of sales, it's about you should have a diverse search. You should talk to people like your ideal hire. You should talk to some stretch candidates. You should talk to some maybe some Salesforce RVPs. (laughs) But you should talk to all of them and create a better understanding of what you're looking for. And too often, people just hire the Salesforce RVP. And it's, you know, (laughs) they're so overmatched in a way it's almost impossible to articulate the ways in which it doesn't fit and doesn't work. Because, again, who is comfortable walking into a situation where Every conversation you're having with prospective customers is you're talking about a problem that they don't even know exists. That's a hard scenario, right? Yeah. Do you also think that one of the challenges that comes with that specific hire is that who are they going to hire? Who are the people in their network that they're going to bring along? And maybe it's one thing to be the leader of the organization that's building a new market that's five years out ahead of the market. It's another to have feet on the street or your actual quarter carrying reps who also come from these big, big companies that have even more kind of minute but specific challenges, leads, opportunities, prospecting, all the things that they actually need to do on a day-to-day to be successful in their job. Typically, if a leader's coming in, they're gonna have a, a group of folks that they also wanna bring in with them. And depending on their past experience, they're probably gonna bring in similar congruent sets of folks into that job with them or into that company with them. Yeah, that's that's a huge aspect. So I remember when I was sort of Coaching Sam, I left Adobe first, and then he left maybe two months after I did. And I said, who are you taking with you, right? Who's your group? And he's like, well, okay, I think I could. No, I said, lock it down (laughs) right now. Have those conversations right now and establish who's going to go with you. And that's, as a first-time VP of sales, to me, that's a big risk neutralizer, Right. If you're a stretch VP of sales, but you have a team or a group that you can bring in and that team is good or talented or that's a big deal for me, for me personally. And when I've helped other companies sort of on VP of sales searches or advise clients on it, I've said, you know, to ask them who their first five hires should be. And then they'll say, okay, who are the five hires? Send me the list. And sometimes people will be like, well, I don't want to share that list. Right. And I'm like, well, we're not going to, obviously, we're not going to reach out to these people. Right unless we have your endorsement, but we want to vet the list, right? To make sure those people are hypothetically a fit. So not a lot of people will do that in a VP of sales search, but I will, because 
that matters, right? So Sam, when he went to Zenefit, Sam took four or five people with him. And those people all made his transition into his first VP of sales roles infinitely less bumpy because he had people around him that he knew he trusted. He knew that they could come in and, and execute and get to revenue incredibly fast. And so if he had come in alone without sort of his own team, his own group would have been a, a much more difficult experience for him. So I was like, figure out who you're going to take with you. And I even told him that years prior when we had sort of talked about, I told him, I said, you know, you could be a VP of sales in three or four years. I said, one of the things that you need to think about is what type of team are you going to take with you when you get your first opportunity? And so, you know, he's obviously turned out to be an exceptional recruiter. And that's something I've done throughout my career is even when I'm consulting is like in the off chance, I might do something full time. I'm always thinking about who's available right now. <laughs> that I could potentially take with me if and when that opportunity presented itself. I don't want to end it, but that is a great place to end it. There is another 30 things that I wanted to touch on, but that might have to be for a part two some other time, Brendan. I really, really appreciate it. I know we're already five minutes over. In closing, I ask the same two questions to every guest. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? I would say grit is in the face of failure, find solutions, is never give up. To me, that's what grit is, certainly from a startup standpoint. You don't give up, you don't quit. When you face adversity, you don't come back and try and crack the coconut the exact same way, right? You're saying, hey, like, okay, there's a reason why we're failing and we need to find what the root cause is and address it and change and adapt. So I would say uh, don't quit and be solution-oriented. To me, that's what grit is in a startup. If someone hears this episode and they want to get a hold of you, is that okay? And what would be the best way to do so? Yeah, it's just uh, LinkedIn's fine. So you can find my profile on LinkedIn. You can email me at brendan, B-R-E-N-D-O-N, at cosell.io. Whatever works. Maybe not Facebook, but a lot of other ways. <laughs> Perfect. All right, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Yeah, great to meet you. And it was fun. Thank you. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.